You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Lori Parham is the AARP Maine's state director, leading the state's advocacy and education efforts on health and financial security issues. She also oversees the organization's efforts to engage cities and towns in creating livable communities for people of all ages, with a specific focus on economic development and aging in place. Thanks for coming in today. It's great to be here. I really love the work that you are doing with the AARP because I think it's a different approach than we typically see when we talk about longevity of life. Absolutely. Uh, We still have challenges when we talk about aging. Um, There are still a lot of assumptions around what it means to grow old or to be old and even to talk about what what that word means. And um, at AARP and especially here in Maine, we're really working to change perceptions of aging um, and share the stories of people over 50 in the state who are doing amazing things. One of the interesting things for me, having worked recently on our new Ageless magazine, um, is that people over the age of 50 are, they're not necessarily retired. They're still working. And in fact, a lot of people, my dad is 72, my mom is, I think, the same age. Both of them are still actively working, no less than they once were 20 years ago. Well, and that's why we're just AARP. We're no longer the American Association of Retired Persons, and we haven't been for some time because a third of our members are still working. And it's not just folks between the ages of 50 and 64. Um, we often hear people say, I'm retiring at 65. But as you, as you said, people are working longer, either because they really love being engaged and involved and want to, and some because they don't have a choice. Um, they haven't been able to put away enough for retirement. And And so they have to keep working in order to pay the bills and make sure that they will be secure in retirement. And I've I've seen both of these things be true. I've seen both my parents be enthusiastically still teaching. My mom in middle school and my dad teaching medical students and residents. And they I ask them, when are you going to retire? And they say, why? Why? Why should I do that? And then I also have had patients who have needed to either go back into the workforce or who have never been able to leave the workforce who are in their 70s and sometimes in their 80s. That leads to some interesting challenges, though. It really does. And we see both in Maine. Uh, Maine, as the oldest state, um, can really be a wonderful test case um, for aging and aging policy and workplace policy. Uh, We hear a lot of folks in Maine say we need to um, bring more young people to Maine. And I like to say, 
AARP loves young people. Our members have children. They have grandchildren. But there is a lot of talent um, amongst people over 50. Um, people between the ages of 50 and 64 are the largest growing age group of entrepreneurs. And in Maine, entrepreneurialism is so important. And yet there is the demographic who is struggling. Uh, when we have surveyed older people in Maine, uh, a large number of them tell us they don't know that they'll ever be able to retire, that they will have to keep working. Baby boomers have not saved the way they really needed to. Uh, many people don't understand that in retirement, just to cover health care costs, you need as much as $250,000 in savings. And so uh, it's, it's really kind of juggling the challenges that folks have, but then also um, with that, talking about the opportunities and the amazing things um, that people are doing. The fact that your dad is still teaching medical students, um, that's such an, a wonderful thing, especially in healthcare, and there's such a need. In addition to your undergraduate degree in sociology, you also have a master's in science and a PhD. So you are very well versed in um, the academics of this. Why did you choose to focus your efforts on the aging community? I think in part because growing up, I spent a lot of time with my grandmothers. My grandfathers both passed away very young and left families, um, and in one case with pretty young children, and my grandmothers became fast friends and were a part of my life uh, from an er a very early age. And I think um, I was comfortable around what was considered older people. Uh, and um, as I um, looked into the issues surrounding uh, aging and retirement, especially for women, uh, I saw, I just really became excited about the policy work and um, have been truly passionate about it ever since. Talk to me about some of the issues that women are facing. Well, uh, a big one is caregiving. Um, Men and women both care for aging parents, but the majority of the work, and this is unpaid work um, by daughters and wives and sisters, is done by women. And uh, when you look at um, now, especially with the aging of the baby boomers, and if you look at um, Maine's population, more and more women are falling into this category. And as we project out, there's going to be more and more need. Often these women are also raising children uh, we call them the sandwich generation. They may have to leave the workforce in order to care for an aging parent, uh, which impacts their own ability to save, um, to get those social security credits, and to prepare for their own retirement. And so uh, there are specific and special challenges as it relates to aging and long-term care for women as they care for others and then as they look at how they're going to care for themselves. Uh, so that's an area where we focus also making sure that any caregiver has the resources they need. Uh, where do you begin when something happens? Most of us don't plan and then all of a sudden there's a, a catastrophic, catastrophic event and how do we manage that? Um, so, and, and then it ties into um, broader issues. We were talking about work, um, work in retirement, ability, the ability to save, to find jobs that allow you to save. Um, 
in Maine. Uh, we looked at uh, uh, some research um, to see how folks in the state were saving, and we're way behind, um, and not just amongst people over 50, but with our, our younger generations as well. So there are a lot of issues, um, pretty in, um, intense policy issues to, to think about um, that hit a lot of sectors as we're looking um, at what it means to grow old. Why is it that you think there is such resistance to a conversation about aging? Oh, it's such a great question. Um, our CEO, uh, Joanne Jenkins, uh, actually uh, wrote a book um, and has really made it her mission to what she calls disrupt aging. Uh, the stereotypes go back a long way. Um, when we think about kind of pre-AARP, we're 60 this year, um, the fact that um, older Americans really had no access to health care in retirement, Medicare didn't exist, um, you uh, recall st historical stories about um, poor houses and where um, we placed older people, um, and we've just really allowed those stereotypes to continue, um, whether it's you know, actresses who are aged out of acting, um, uh, the debate over gray hair or not, um, the assumptions that um, old means you're walking around with a cane um, and can barely make it up the stairs. And yet you see uh, how that's just not necessarily the case. Um, but it, it takes um, its language, its um, attitude, so um, its education. It's a constant effort to try to change the way we think about it. I mean, I get all the time, oh, I don't feel old. You know, you're AARP. 50, really? You know, for us, age is just a number. Uh, our founder was 73 when she founded this great organization. And so, um, but it's not easy. It's a constant battle. It's interesting to me that in this day and age, we are more aware of people of different nationalities. Uh, we're more aware of gender and not discriminating against people based on that, sexual orientation. I mean, the list goes on. Our awareness of all these things that we don't want to be considered ist. We don't want to be racist, for example. But isn't not having an openness about people who are older, isn't that just ageist? Isn't that just another group for us to discriminate against? It is. It is. And um, it, it's it been fun through our work on disrupting aging. Um, and, and Joanne, um, you know, she really, she decided to tackle this because I think she saw the potential across everything else we work on. But we've got um, a wonderful um, video of um, millennials um, share, showing what they think it means to be old and, you know, the basic you know, walking with the cane. And then um, they bring in to each one of these individuals an older person who is a dancer or a boxer. Uh, and these are folks in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And just to see the light bulb go off for these young people was pretty amazing. Um, but it's really going to take, and I think, an ongoing concerted effort. And you know, we hear a lot about how baby boomers are really going to change these perceptions. But um, when they're all around you, uh, radio, TV, um, ad campaigns, uh, it's going to take a, a concerted effort, I think, across sectors to, to really see change. 
Why is aging in place important? So first and foremost, we know that's where people want to be. And when we say aging in place, we mean at home and in the community. So um, as folks grow older, uh, if they have a choice between institutional care and the community they love, they want to be in the community, even if they can't be in their own home. They want to be right there. And especially in, a Maine, in Maine, where community is so important. Um, so it's what people want. Uh, it also is good for local economies. The longer people stay at home and in the communities they love, the more they're involved in, and active in civic life and social life. Uh, they're spending money in their communities. My grandmother, who I lost just a year ago, if she didn't get her hair done every week, and you know that that was the most important thing, and that was helping a local, you know, a local business. And uh, there are a lot of folks like her. Um, and, it, and it really does help build that sense of community. Social participation is so important. Uh, we have new research out of our foundation that shows that so, so, social isolation uh, really can um, increase, um, or I'm sorry, decrease longevity. Um, and um, that that's so important for people to be connected. And so being able to spend those last years, your, your final years, at a place that is safe but connected is just really important to people. I, I absolutely have seen this as a doctor. The patients that come in to see me who are who don't have close family members, who, who maybe have moved to the community um, relatively recently, don't have close friends, the, the loneliness that they feel, it, it, it absolutely impacts not only their emotional and psychological health, but their physical health. It, it has this far-reaching implication that I, I, I think it's important for us to address. Absolutely. It's isolation is a leading cause for dementia as well. And we hear from people. We um, have started hosting social events, coffees and happy hours um, to help bring people together. And the number of folks who've said, I just moved here or I just retired. I'm having to build a new network. And I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to meet other people like me. And we're seeing friendships develop uh, and more interest um, in taking those activities even further. And so, you know, we're doing what we can to help build those social connections where we can, uh, because no one should no one should age alone. Uh, talk to me about age-friendly communities. What types of things um, would such a community offer to someone who is attempting to age in place? So um, the work that we're doing in the age-friendly space is really situated around multiple domains of livability, we call them. So everything from um, affordable housing, and not just low-income housing, but middle-income housing, um, and also housing that's um, accessible, um, that's near services. So you think of Maine and how rural we are and how difficult it could be for an older person who's way down a long road in a big, uh, a rambling farmhouse um, that doesn't make it very easy to be connected. Um, transportation, which ties into that, uh, the ability um, to get around when you should no longer be driving, and um, access to um, if you're in a very rural area and you don't have the sorts of services that a metro would provide, um, ways to get places, whether it's through a volunteer program or other. Um, 
social participation. What are the kinds of activities that a community has to bring people together? And I should emphasize that an age-friendly community isn't just for quote unquote older people. Um, our view is that um, the kinds of services and supports you put into place for someone over 50 or over 65 is just as good for a young family. So if you think about um, public spaces and parks and playgrounds and trails and uh, exercise equipment, uh, if you think about sidewalks, making sure the snow is cleared in the winter, that's good for an older person who may walk with a cane or just walk more slowly and have a little trouble with balance, but it's a good for a young mother who's also carrying one child and, and pushing a stroller. Um, uh, civic engagement and employment, whether it's mentoring or uh, recognizing the value that people over 50, 50 bring to the workforce and looking at policies and programs that support the 50 plus worker um, who may be caregiving, for example. So flexible work arrangements, um, telecommuting, uh, looking at um, different types of leave that support a caregiver who may need to take time off. So it's really a range of, of policies. I mean, we like to talk about broadband and how disconnected a lot of Maine is. That's another important issue that really um, come together to make a community um, more age-friendly. And of course, if you're Portland, it's gonna look different than it will in Bethel or Skowhegan. And so you've got to take into account the, 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 the close community ties as well. Are there benefits to having multiple generations interacting on a regular basis? So we see um, in some of the programs that we're seeing across the country, we'll take the workplace, for example, there's been some good research that shows um, a multi-generational workforce is good for business. There's a good return on investment because you have um, different attitudes, different approaches, the ability for people to mentor, um, older people to to uh, mentor younger, but also vice versa. Let's you know, think about technology. Um, but also we see that in the, in the area of social isolation and connectedness too. There's a real movement to uh, think about housing and supports community uh, where you could have an after school program tied to, to a community center um, where um, retirees may go um, for art classes and also looking at how uh, the two generations can mentor each other outside of the workforce. So we've got this great program going on in Augusta where the Age Friendly Committee, it's all retirees, is working with the Girls and Boys Club teaching them sewing. And this is a skill that they're using to sew hats and gloves and scarves uh, for people who need an extra layer in the winter. And so whether or not this group of kids ends up taking on sewing as a career, um, it's a skill, it's tactical, it's a place to focus energy. And through that time together, they're connecting with folks they may not have otherwise connected with, hearing their stories, maybe getting a little bit of advice. You mentioned that you have a comfort level with people who are older, starting with um, your grandmothers when you were a child. Why is it that some people don't have a comfort with older people? That's a really good question. Um, it could be that they never had the opportunity like I did to spend time around um, people, people who are older. 
I think there can be some fear. Um, it can be difficult to watch um, people grow old, especially if they have chronic health issues. Um, it death can be scary. I'm just going to say say that, um, and so uh, it can be easier to avoid that. And while um, any of us can be impacted at any age, we tend to associate old age with end of life. And that's part of, I think, um, looking at how we can reframe that, um, that just because you're growing older doesn't mean your life is ending. And uh, what I love about Ageless Maine is the opportunity to profile some of these people in Maine who may be 70, 80, 90, um, but are still active or engaged in giving back. And when you can spend time with them, I think some of that fear goes away. I actually found when I was um, working on Ageless Maine with the rest of the editorial team that there were many people that we were talking about that were probably healthier than a lot of people who are far younger because they were so engaged and they were so passionate about the things that they were doing, whether it was the woman the women that I wrote about for the wearable technology story or whether it was the woodchuck story that Susan Axelrod wrote. And, and I think it's often said that age is just a frame, a state of mind. I'm not sure that's exactly true, but I certainly do believe that there's a, there's a way that we can look at things that influences the way that we live. I would agree. And when, you know, the woodchucks, and that was just such a lovely story. And think about the social connectedness there. So these uh, gentlemen are physically active um, in a state and in a community they clearly love. They're doing this work together. And we also know the benefits of volunteering. They're doing something for other people. And so you put those together, and that's a really good combination for longevity. Um, and sometimes I, I think I, I'm probably healthier now than I was when I was 20 um, or probably even 30. And I think sometimes it takes a little time to recognize uh, how to prioritize and where to focus. Um, and, uh, you know, sadly, there are um, folks who are older who really are struggling with chronic illness and disease. And so then there's also the question of, you know, what are the policies, you know, what can, what can be done to make sure that those patients you see um, can get some relief and that we can start to address some of those issues sooner um, in Maine and frankly across the country. Yeah, that, that is an important point that aging can really manifest itself in many different ways. Mm -hmm. So I. I think because a lot of older people, when they're feeling healthy, they don't come to the doctor. I will see older people who come to see me and they will often say it is very difficult to get old. It is really hard because it seems like one thing after another after another. Um, they feel as if their bodies are failing them. It can be very expensive. They spend a lot of time in doctor's offices. And I agree that trying to find a way to support them through all of this is going to present different challenges than it might if it was a younger person accessing the healthcare system. So what can we do specifically in healthcare to help people who are trying to work through aging? Well, we hear a lot about prevention. Um, and when I talk about Medicare to uh, 
folks in the community and to our members uh, and the importance of ensuring that people are going to the doctor, that they are getting that primary care. Um, the more we do to stave off diabetes, for example, which costs the Medicare program billions of dollars, um, then that's going to help the sustainability of the program, which will invest more dollars into those preventative measures. But it's also part, so it's the healthcare component, and boy, that, that could be a conversation for, for multiple hours. But that's why we're also looking at the community component, and health and supportive services are one of the domains that we look at in community. So outside of, of government programs, um, uh, you know, depending on what you have for insurance, and um, that can be very expensive, what can you be doing and what can a community offer through public spaces and parks? I love that um, our colleagues in Bethel have an indoor walking program in winter for older people to make sure that they're still getting exercise. We decided to host a Tai Chi class because we had a volunteer willing to teach it and we're amazed at how many people came out. So there is a lot, there are a lot of, of no cost, low cost things that communities can do uh, to offer. Uh, and granted, that's just the wellness piece. It's not going to solve all of the problems. But I mean, there's a lot of great research out there that says if you get up and you move, if you, you're a little more thoughtful about what you eat, um, if you get up and you move, but you do it with a friend in terms of your mental health, that that could have a really positive impact on a longer life and a healthier life. Obviously, there are a lot of different places that you could focus because this is an enormous topic. What is one thing that you would like to see change as regards to aging? Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I, I, I think I've got a lot of, uh, there's enough out there that I should be able to work for a very long time. Uh, I love the work that we're doing in communities uh, because it, it's bigger than just healthcare. Uh, as I look at the aging of Maine, as I hear debates about Maine's economy and what the state needs, uh, I continue and, and really believe, not just because I work for AARP, to make the case that people over 50 are hugely important to Maine and the economy. Uh, we've done some work with Oxford Economics nationally on the longevity economy, and this is the purchasing power and the GDP of people over 50. Um, they're buying more in tech, believe it or not. Um, they pay more in healthcare. Um, they give back more uh, charitably, they're paying more in taxes, and so th that age group is hugely important. Um, and their children are the millennials, and research shows that they want a lot of the same things. Uh, access to be able, uh, you know, to walk to where you want to go, um, public spaces, uh, cultural activities, music. And so when I think about this body of work, if we can get out of a mindset that it's just about older people, but that um, that can turn some people off in some sectors, but we, we talk about how that infrastructure then can then impact the next generation and the next generation, I think that makes for a really exciting kind of future of Maine. And uh, the, there are so many issues to tackle uh, and, and we'll continue to work on all of them, but I'm really excited about this work because it involves people in community and it showcases how deeply people care about where they live. 
I've been speaking with Lori Parham, who is the AARP Maine State Director, leading the state's advocacy and education efforts on health and financial security issues. She also oversees the organization's efforts to engage cities and towns in creating livable communities for people of all ages, with a specific focus on economic development and aging in place. Thank you so much for the work you're doing and for coming in today. It was great talking with you. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.